to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Sarah McKenzie here. It's another season of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. You've got season 11 here. This is episode 65. I'm so happy to be here with you. Okay, so this season is going to be super spectacular. First of all, it's weekly. So we're changing, we're upping our game here at the Read Aloud Revival. Every Tuesday from now through November, you can expect a brand new episode of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. We're launching season 11 with an episode about how to best use and support your local library because I hear a lot from parents who say that they know the library is an incredible resource. They're just not sure how to make the most of it. Your taxpayer dollars are funding an incredible resource, really a powerhouse resource. Not just the books that are on your local library shelves, but the shelves of libraries all over the world and digital resources that would be of an enormous help to you and your kids if you knew they were there. And best of all, the best resource of all, (laughs) the people, librarians and library staff who are knowledgeable and can help you find just about anything you need. Before we dive into this episode, I want to let you know a few important things. First, let's talk about the resources available to you because I want to make sure you're getting what you need to make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. In this episode, we have a digital library kit that you can print out and bring to your library, or you can email or forward to your librarian uh, that will help your librarian, your local librarian, set up a read aloud revival display at your library. This will make it really easy for patrons to find books that we recommend here at the Read Aloud Revival. We got this idea from today's guest, who's a librarian and who set up a Read Aloud Revival display of books that we talk about on the podcast and recommend in our book list at our library. And so we thought that is a spectacular idea. We're making it really easy for your own local librarians to do the same thing by uh, putting together a kit. You can grab it for free. Head to the show notes for today. So that's readaloudrevival.com. Look for episode episode 65. You'll be able to grab that kit for free. You can uh, print it out and bring it into your librarian. You can email or forward it to them, or you can just send them right here to this show where they can grab it for themselves. That is a great way where we can make excellent books and resources super available to people in your local community. Now, I also want to talk about the resources available to you because I want to make sure right here at the beginning of a brand new season that you're getting what you need to make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Podcasts like the one you're listening to right now, (laughs) book lists and articles are all available to you free at readaloudrevival.com. Actually, we just updated our Read Aloud book list it's better than ever. So if you haven't grabbed yours yet, or it's been a while since you've looked at it, go to readaloudrevival.com, pop your email into the page there to get to that book list. It's pretty amazing. Um, Our premium access members, however, they get all the very best resources to make meaningful and lasting connections with their kids through books. Premium access members here at Read Aloud Revival are about to get to meet Andrew Peterson, who's the author of The Wing Feather Saga and a professional musician. Uh, Kirby Larson, who is the Newbery Honor winning writer of Hattie Big Sky and a whole bunch of other great books. And Lois Lowry. Yeah, <laughs> that Lois Lowry. You know, Number of the Stars, The Giver, Anastasia Krupnik, The Willoughbys, so many books. They get to meet all of those authors and more in online author access events. Those are just the authors coming up here in the next couple of months. We do an online 
author access event every single month. We have some amazing authors lined up for the next year. Pretty soon, I'm going to spill the beans about who they are. You're going to love it. (laughs) But Read a Lot Revival Premium Access helps families make meaningful and lasting connections with their kids through books by equipping you the parents, inspiring the heck out of your kids, and then connecting you with like-minded families who are doing the same thing. But we only open enrollment to premium access twice a year. Our next enrollment period is coming up soon. So if you want to know when we open the doors to premium access, go to rarmembership.com and put your email in there. We'll make sure you get the very first invitation when doors open. So that's rarmembership.com. Just put your email on the waiting list. There's no obligation there, but then you know when we open doors for premium access and you won't miss the announcements when we tell you all the good stuff coming up in the next year. Seriously, I've had the hardest time keeping my mouth zipped. (laughs) As we've been booking authors and setting up masterclasses for the next year, Read Aloud Revival Premium Access is taking things to the next level in 2017 and 2018. I can't wait to share it with you. Okay, now let's talk libraries. So Amy, welcome to the Read Aloud Revival. I'm so glad you're here. It's been, I've been looking forward to our conversation for a while now. Thanks, me too. So tell us, before we we launch into our conversation all about libraries today, tell us a little bit more about you and your work. Sure. So I am probably not a typical Read Aloud Reviveler. I am not married. I don't have any kids, but I am, because of my work, surrounded by families. I, of course, have nieces and some friends who have children who are very involved in their lives. So I'm around kids and recommending books in that aspect of my personal life too. But because of the work that I do with families in libraries, a few of them had mentioned your podcast to me. And so I started listening and then I just kept listening and kept listening. And because of course, if something is presented in an order, just like a serious book, it must be listened to in order. So you <laughs> start with number 45 or wherever you are when you get introduced to a podcast. No, no, you must start at number one. And you listen. You've listened to them all chronologically? Yes. That is super impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I live in the Twin Cities metro area. That's Minneapolis and St. Paul for those outside the Midwest. How did, what did your journey look like into becoming a librarian? Yeah. So um, my mom and my, my mom's mom, my grandma Ellen, were both like secret librarians never had gone to school for it, but they both really wanted to be librarians. My grandma volunteered for a long time at the library at her church. And then my mom, when she had kids, she just took us to the library all the time, partly because it was like free entertainment <laughs> and partly just because she wanted us to love books. <laughs> we didn't have a lot of extra money. My mom stayed at home and I have a younger brother and sister. So she was home with the three of us and my dad worked. And so we didn't buy a lot of books. We got books as gifts. But even to this day, my home library is people are surprisingly shocked by how small it is because I'm so particular. Like if I'm going to buy a book and keep it in my collection, it is going to be a book that like I will have read 50 times or um, just has a lot of special personal meaning to me. It has to earn its place on your shelf. Yeah. 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 And we visited libraries a lot. And I mean, we were totally that library family where my mom would say, okay, I have to go to the grocery store. Who wants to come? And we'd all be like, well, can you drop us at the library? 
because it was on the way to the grocery <laughs> store and she'd say, okay. So we'd pile in the van with our backpacks. We each had to bring our backpack with and fill it up with books. That was when we knew we were done with how many books we could have. And we got very creative with packing the backpacks as we got older. <laughs> <laughs> Down and reflect on it. You're like, well, surely everyone is doing these kinds of things. Like not everyone is. <laughs> well, you know, okay. So that it's true. And I think in large part, more people don't use make heavy use of their library because they don't know how or they don't know the best way to or they maybe feel kind of intimidated or maybe embarrassed that they haven't used it much. So like as an adult going in going, oh, I should know how to use the library, you know, but as a, I worked at a library, the Pierce County Library System in Washington State, I worked there for, oh, man, three years, I guess, when my oldest kids were younger. It was such a great job because my husband worked during the day and I was on call at the circulation desk. So I'm not a librarian. I was just circulation. I can't remember the ex- official title that I had there. But basically, I was the lady checking people's books out behind the desk, pulling holds. And I would work a couple of evenings a week whenever it worked for me, just to fill in for people who were sick at all the 14 different branches in the library system, which was really cool because I got to know all 14 branches. I worked at all of them. And I got to get familiar with how different every branch worked a little bit differently. I got to meet lots of readerly type of people. I got to talk during my shifts to people who loved books. It was the perfect job. I absolutely adored that job when I did it. And I remember thinking, I thought I knew how to use the library really well. But then when I was working there, I found all these other... I just feel like I did. I had just barely tapped into this rich resource. (laughs) And I feel like a lot of parents probably feel that way. Just sort of like, I know that that's a great resource. I just don't know how to use it. So I think that's what we should break down today. We should talk about how families can make really good use of their library, how they can get the most benefit from them, how they can support them to keep them going. So are you up for that conversation? Absolutely. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what your role is in the library you work at? Sure. So not only am I responsible for programming for zero to 18, you know, story times and sort of our one-off events. I also select all the books that go in our children and teen collection. I select media like DVDs and audiobooks, um, music CDs. I also catalog all that stuff. So once it gets at our library, I do all the computer work to make sure that it's available in our catalog and searchable and decide where it's going to sit on the shelf. So if there's meetings or advocacy in the community, uh, different groups or boards to be on that are related to children and families, I do that. I do outreach visits. So I have quite a plate of things that I have both taken on for myself, but also (laughs) are just the normal things that in the day-to-day workflow that I'm doing that For a lot of the larger systems, a lot of the collections work, for instance, is centralized. So there's a person at one administrative building who's purchasing, who's making decisions about what books they're going to purchase for the entire system and then which branches of their library system the books will end up at. Okay. So, you know, it's not librarians at each individual branches necessarily that are making those decisions for their library. Someone Mm -hmm. else is doing it on the system level. (laughs) I just think it would be amazing to be able to purchase books for the library system. Like basically you get to buy books with someone else's money. (laughs) Oh, that's so much fun. When a child or a parent comes to you looking for a good read or a good next book, and they say something like, you know, 
I really loved the Percy Jackson series, or I really loved Harry Potter, or I really love Anne of Green Gables and Lucy Maud Montgomery's work. How do you decide what to suggest next? Or is there a resource you recommend that we could look at at our library or use at our libraries to figure out what to read next? One of the things that we use sometimes when we're looking for read-alikes or, you know, for someone saying, I really liked Percy Jackson, I'm looking for something else to read that's like Percy Jackson. A lot of libraries subscribe to a database, a service called Novelist. And then you can type in things like a plot, like, you know, Greek mythology, teenagers, adventure. Yeah. And it will, it will give you books that meet those kind of criteria. It doesn't necessarily have to just be, I read this book and I want a book just like it. You can sort of enter in elements of the plot or maybe you're looking for a history book, but you want it to have an African-American character in it. So to, to be about that experience rather than an Asian American or something like that. So that's one thing that you would maybe have access to through your library, depending on where you are, that is a little different than just sort of what you'd find on the open internet. And your librarians at your local library are surrounded with books. They're always reading books. They're reading about books. They're reading reviews. And I think sometimes as parents, we feel a little intimidated to go up to our librarians at our local library or have our kids go up to their librarians and say, can you help me find a book? So could you talk to me for a minute about what you would tell a parent who's maybe hesitant to use the library or to go up to the library and ask for help? What can a parent who's nervous about visiting the library, what tips do you have for them? Yeah, well, the first one, here's the not so secret secret. A lot of librarians are introverts. So we're as intimidated by talking to strangers as you are. So uh, <laughs> like, don't, don't ever feel like you're being awkward because chances are good. We're probably sitting behind the desk also feeling awkward. <laughs> a lot of people will say, I don't know if you know the answer. And I always want to say, yeah, I probably don't. But like, here's the thing about being librarians. That's what we're trained to do. Find answers. That's right. We're not trained to have an answer. We're trained to find an answer. Yeah. To know where to look, right? <laughs> exactly. It helps just to introduce yourselves. Some of the best kind of library patron relationships I have are with families where the parents just kind of said, hi, I'm Sarah, we homeschool. So you'll see us a lot. And then we start to have just sort of a conversation about what kind of books that their kids like and what ages they are. And so then the next time they come in, I see them. And then when I'm looking through a catalog, I say, oh, you know, I bet the Mackenzies might like that book. Like, let me make sure to point that out to her when she comes in. And so you know, pretty soon you're building a, a relationship. Once I've gotten to know, especially like the homeschool families in my community, I've asked them a little bit of kind of the philosophy or the approach that they're using at home. Because then when I'm looking at something like that, I wouldn't necessarily buy, the more you're willing to share with your librarian, the more that they can share back with you in terms of the books that are in there, the books they're pointing out to you or recommending to you. And kind of on that note too, something that's helpful for librarians is when kids and adults have enough language to talk about what they're interested in. And what I mean by that is like most librarians, if you go up and say, I want a living book, aren't going to have any idea what that means. Mm -hmm. You know, unless they're familiar with homeschool methodology or what a living book is, they're not going to know what that means. But if you say, you know, we like to study history through, through story. So we're looking for something that is going to teach us a lot about a specific time period or about a specific region of the world, but we want it to be a really good story and start pointing you into the direction of the kind of books you're looking for without even knowing yeah. that what that in your mind, what you're getting is a living book. 
They're just saying, oh, you're looking for narrative nonfiction or, you know, a really well-researched fiction book. Cool. I know where those are. things that I think has been really helpful to help me make better use of my library is the hold system. I know when I've had very young children going to the library and rowing the stacks is like a certain form of torture because they're running around or they're making loud noises or pulling books off the stack. Totally normal. Yeah. (laughs) So one thing that I think some families don't realize you can do is you can go to your website, your library's website, and Mm -hmm. Whatever your local library's website is, you can search for books. And if you have a library card, you can put them on hold. And what that means is that the library will go select those books off of the bookshelves and they'll put them on a hold shelf where you can pick them up. And one thing I didn't realize until I really started using my library more heavily is that you probably have access to, and this depends on branch to branch, or I should say library system to library system, depending on where you live but you very likely have access to more than just your local branch of the library. So for example, when I worked at Pierce County, you could put a book on hold that was in any one of our 14 libraries. And we would, the library would ship that book to whatever branch you wanted to pick it up to for free. So, and I know not all libraries do that. I have a friend who says that at her library system to put a book on hold, especially if it's from a different branch, it costs something. So I think it kind of depends on your, your library system. But Look into it because if you're thinking, gosh, I just can't keep up with the expense of having kids who are readers, <laughs> voracious readers, or I want to bring lots of books into our home, using your library's hold system is really, really helpful way to get access to more books. It may even extend beyond just like what's within the system that your library is a part of. That service is typically called interlibrary loan. So if you've never heard about that, asking if, you know, if your library has access to that, finding out if it does cost anything, that might also expand what resources you're able to provide to your kids. Okay. So let's say you're on your library's website, you're looking up a specific title and you see that your library doesn't carry it. A lot of us will go, my library doesn't have it. I guess I'm going to have to buy it. Another option is to get on the phone or go, if you're at the library, just go up and say, is there any way we can get this particular book? Because what Amy's talking about with interlibrary loan means that a lot of libraries have access to other libraries resources and they can get those shipped in either for a small fee or for free. But find out, like just ask, because I think for a lot of us, we're not making use of some of those more cost savings and pretty powerful resources because we don't know they exist and we don't know how to use them. The best way to figure out how to use them for your own system is just to talk to somebody. So do librarians and circulation clerks, do they hate it when we put 20 or 30 books on hold at the library? (laughs) No, not at all. We're probably one of some of the biggest offenders, actually, library staff having as many holds as you possibly can at one time. Along the lines of holds, another good feature to check into seeing if your library has is we have the ability in a lot of the places I've been to suspend holds. So let's say you have 30 books that you are interested in having and you put them on, you request them all at the same time, but you know that, you know, you're not going to be studying seashores and seashells for another three weeks, but you just, you know, heard about this book and it looked great. And with our system, you have the ability to say, okay, I want to suspend that hold. I want to put it on pause for two more weeks so that when we're actually starting to study that, that hold will be active and the book will come in right at the time that we need it. Amy, do you have tips on how we can best teach our kids to use the library? Well, we kind of hit on one of them, which would be giving your kids enough 
background knowledge and vocabulary to talk about their own reading. So things like making sure to know that your kids know what genres are and what genres they like to read. If they like to read mysteries or they like to read historical fiction or science fiction, whatever it is, that they know what those terms are and what they need Mm -hmm. and what kind of books they apply to. A lot of kids don't know things like that. That automatically helps us start to filter down what we're going to suggest or recommend if you ask us for a recommendation about what to read. There's a a researcher and a teacher. Her name is Donna Lynn Miller. She's written a couple of books, one called The Book Whisperer and one called Reading in the Wild. And they, they're both books are about how you cultivate lifelong reading habits in children. She presents it from the classroom perspective because that's sort of what she's talking about. But in general, um, she talks about five things that lifelong readers dedicate time to read. They self-select reading material. They share books and reading with other readers. They have reading plans. So they are always thinking about what they're going to read next or what, they, what topic they're interested in. And they show preference for genres, authors, and topics. And so giving them both the tools and the language to talk about what books they're interested in, but then also equipping them to make their own reading choice allows them to develop an identity as a reader. Otherwise, their only method of getting books is from an adult. An adult says, here, read this. Here, you would like this. Mm -hmm. But if you remove the adult from the equation, the child themselves has no concept of what they like to read Mm -hmm. or what would be a good fit for them. And so when I say, you know, let your kids choose, obviously, family by family, you have your own values and you have things that are important to you. And you're already communicating and teaching them about those values and things that are important to you. So it's okay. And it's totally, you know, I would say it's a great idea to say, well, that includes like things that we consume, like media, like books and movies and TV. So these same values we have apply to these same books. So if you're looking at a book and it seems, you know, you're flipping through it and you see some stuff that doesn't really seem to fit with what our family believes, it's okay to say that's not a good fit for me. And so it's not just as free for all. It's like, well, they picked it off the shelf, so we better take it home. Like, yeah, right. You no, know, I definitely advocate for the parent's role and the child having that conversation with their parents about, you know, is this a good book for me? Is this a good book for us? And it's okay to you know, say like, well, that's not a good book for us. We're not taking it home for whatever reason. But if they're never, if their only experience of books is just, you know, oh, I found it. (laughs) An adult gave it to me. That's not really a a, a lifelong reader habit. Like people who are readers, we know what we like. And so we know if someone suggests something to us, if we're going to like it or not, most likely. Okay. So giving them the language to be able to talk about books and describe the kinds of books they like to read, and also giving them the freedom to choose some of the books they bring home from the library. So you're not choosing everything yourself, but you're letting your kids bring home some books that they have found on the shelf and would like to try on their own. Both of those things being helpful in in equipping our kids with a readerly identity or helping them see themselves as readers and having the habit of readers and helping them use the library. Very good. question a lot. People who say like, how do you get your kids not to bring home the light stuff more? I don't know what parents might be less excited about sort of the 
more pop culture kind of things, books based on TV characters, things like that. And what I'll say is that um, I actually do let my kids check those out from the library. Not like massive, huge stacks. Sometimes I'll go, okay, you can pick like three or four of these. That's it. But one thing I've noticed is that when I'm reading aloud with my kids, I, I basically get to pick those, right? So I'll pick books that I know are of higher literary value, that maybe have really good sophisticated language in them, that tell a really good story, that just kind of maybe a new award-winning book, like a National Book Award or a Newbery Award winner or a Caldecott book or something. A book that I think basically gives my child a taste of something really worthwhile. And if I'm doing that, if I am reading aloud to my kids books that are, are really high quality, if I'm giving them and offering them books that are really high quality, I don't have to worry so much that absolutely everything we bring home from the library meets that standard. Some of my kids, like my oldest daughter, for example, loved reading the Baby's Glitters Club, loved reading the Cupcake Diaries. My 13-year-old adored the Disney fairy books that drove me crazy when she was younger. I just didn't read them aloud, but I let them read them on their own. And they just basically acquired a really good taste, I think, over time. For some kids, there's a stage where they need to read a lot of light books, where they're going to be drawn to characters that they see on TV. Because for a young child, especially like the characters they watch on their favorite shows kind of seem like friends. And so they are like, hey, there's my friend there at the library. What I've seen in my own home with my 13 and 15 year old daughters, for example, it did not damage them to be reading Babysitter's Club or Cupcake Diaries or the fairy books. Didn't damage them to bring home Dora picture books. If anything, it helped them see that I value their relationship with books. And then because we read so many really, really good books together out loud, and because I was also offering those to my kids, they were able to tell the difference and they can tell the difference. Taste is acquired over time. So I wouldn't stress too much. I would guess that if you're struggling with bringing home books that are TV character based or whatever, ones you don't really want your kids to bring home, if you told them you can bring one home or two, and then the rest of the things are going to choose something else that would probably be more helpful than absolutely banning them and turning those books that you don't really want your kids to read tons of into forbidden fruit. Okay, let's chat just for a second about YA, which I think is, it can be kind of a difficult section of the library for parents to navigate. Do you have any tips or recommendations on helping parents navigate YA, especially if they're not reading ahead of, the, you know, most of us probably aren't reading ahead of our kids or reading a lot of YA ourselves. I would say what is allowed in a YA book content-wise is a little bit more, no, I, don't, I don't even say a little bit, is quite a bit more free than what I would feel comfortable handing to my own teen. So do you have suggestions for parents who feel the same way? Yeah, YA is tricky because it's covering such a wide range of development and kids that especially, like I was a, an early and voracious reader. So by the time my reading level had reached where YA books are written, my emotional maturity was not there because I was in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. So that one is really, it is really tricky. And my, I mean, it's, it's not a very helpful suggestion, but my best suggestion really is to find either a friend, a teacher, a librarian, a blog, even someone on Twitter, <laughs> find someone who reads YA, who seems to have similar values as you, or at least you're as someone you can communicate with and say, hey, you know, can you tell me more about this? I'm curious about what, you know, what happens in this romantic relationship? What is this school environment like? To ask questions that help you better understand what the content is like. The other thing I would recommend is looking at other library sites, maybe 
you know, there's a couple big national, you know, like people know about Multnomah County library system. They know about New York Public Library, Chicago Public Library. If there's a bigger metropolitan area near you, see if their library has a lot of librarians will call this kind of list like a clean reads or a gentle reads list for teens. And what that means is books that don't have a lot of swearing, usually sexual encounters or content, sort of like drinking drugs, that kind of thing. So they're just kind of nice, good stories where nothing too objectionable happens. And that, of course, is always, it's really subjective. What something, right. what is, you know, what's right. objectionable is subjective. <laughs> yeah. But in general, libraries will have lists like that. And so you may get a lot of ideas from looking around, even if your own library doesn't have a list like specifically like that. That's where your own self and your child being really, being able to very specifically talk about what you're interested in and what you're not interested in is helpful to a librarian because we can start to plug in some of those words into our searches, asking around to other librarians, talk to other librarians a lot when we get questions like this to get, you know, so that if you're working with a librarian, the more specific you can be about things that, you know, you're not quite ready (laughs) to introduce (laughs) to your teenager can be helpful. But I don't, there's no like magic source. There's no magic bullet of like, here's where you can go to find good recommendations. Yeah. And the truth is that we all have a little, like you said, it's subjective. We all have a little bit different level of what we're comfortable reading with and talking about with our kids. We all have kids who are at a different emotional maturity to be able to handle certain content or not. It just is so dependent on your individual family. One thing that I think is really interesting is the way books are categorized by ages. So this is probably helpful for our listeners to realize that once you get out of picture books and early reader types, you have middle grade fiction, which are books targeted to 8 to 12s. This is marketing terms, publisher's terms, 8 to 12. And then you'll have YA, which is 13 to 17. From a parent's perspective, I would love to go in there and hack that up (laughs) and say there should be 8 to 10, 11 to 12, 13 to 15, 16, 17. Because... From my perspective, there's a huge difference in my 13-year-old and my 15-year-old even, let alone a 17-year-old, and with the content that they're prepared to take on, read, and talk about. Same thing I would say with middle grade. There's a big, huge difference between an 8-year-old and a 12-year-old. So it seems silly to me to put them in the same category. So one of the things that I do when I'm looking at a book and I'm trying to decide which child to hand it to or what what age children to read it aloud with, uh, one of the resources I will go to is commonsensemedia.org. And what they do is they'll just give you ratings for the nature of the content that's in the book. So they'll say on a zero to five rating, how much violence is in this book, how much sexual content in this book, how much swearing is in this book, how many positive role models are there generally in this book. It kind of gives you a overarching sense for the level of maturity the publisher is expecting your child to have when they approach it. That way you can look at it and go, look, my child is ready for a level three in cussing, but not in these other areas. Or as a family, we're comfortable with our 14-year-old reading this, but not that. It kind of just gives you a good idea of what to expect so that you're not handing a book to your child that completely surprises both you and your child (laughs) in an unpleasant way. So that's a good resource. That's commonsensemedia.org. They don't have everything there, of course, but I do go peek there for YA books almost every time before I'm selecting them. And then I just, I book lists are really helpful. Honey for a Teen's Heart by Gladys Hunt is a good book resource for if you're looking for books for your teens. And Heather Woody 
at blog she wrote has some good book lists for teens. We'll put a couple of those of our favorite book lists for teens for in the YA category up in the show notes to this podcast. And so if you go to the show notes for today's show, you'll find some of those. What about, Amy, I know that a lot of our listeners are big library supporters or want to be big library supporters. We want to see our libraries thrive. I think there might be a secret fear that we all have that someday libraries will go away if we aren't supporting them and making the best use of them and helping them flourish. So do you have any perspective on what families can do to support their local library? Sure. If you don't know how your library is funded, whether that's like through county, city, region, find out how they are. And then you can write letters. You can even have your kids send in, you know, scribbles. (laughs) Let them know that you appreciate them supporting and funding libraries. Tell them how your family uses the library. Hearing directly from people in the community is, you know, we can tell them until we're blue in the face about our circulation statistics or how many programs we had and how many people attended. But, you know, having that personal letter from a five-year-old about, you know, my favorite books come from the library means a lot to government officials, to city workers and county workers, because that, you know, it tells the story directly from them. It's not us trying to make some sort of marketing campaign to plead for our existence. It's coming directly from you, you know? So that is one way to do it, to just to directly write letters to the people who fund your library and thank them and let them know how your library uses it. I had a story about that, actually. Yeah. This wasn't a library I worked at, but it was when uh, my oldest three were super small. Our little library that was walking distance from our house, they had to do some library cuts. They had to do some funding cuts, budget cuts. And they cut the library story time that was at that branch because it was pretty small. And I remember going up to the front desk and saying, oh, that just makes me so sad. It's harder for me to get to any of the other bigger branches that have library story time. And also those story times are really crowded. And so I really liked our story time here. And she said, "Uh, yeah, somebody else just told me that. Send a letter in to the president. And so I did. And I got a letter back from him saying your letter and a, co- a letter letter similar to it from a couple other families meant a lot to us. We'll be reinstituting a library story time at your branch in whatever month it was. It was like the next following month. And sure enough, they brought story time back to my little branch. And I thought, wow, I had no idea. I could have grumbled about that for a long time, you know, frustrated, <laughs> just wishing we had a library story time. But I think a lot of times we just need to speak up because the library, the people who are working the libraries in your area, they want to make the service work for you. They want to help you. That's why they're there. And so if you tell them, hey, this is how what could help me, that's exactly the kind of feedback they use when they're deciding where their resources and money and funding should go. So mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Your library may have a friends of the library group. Um, that's usually kind of the nonprofit arm of a library that can raise, do fundraising events for the library. In general, there's sort of maybe they run book sales. They're people who are wanting to be supportive of the library and they have the ability because as government entities, libraries cannot, you know, like fundraise. <laughs> they can be involved in those kinds of activities in support of the library so that there may be opportunities for you to be involved with that organization. You can inquire about volunteering. One library that I worked at, it was so sweet. A family would, on their birthday, they would come in and give us a check to buy a book in honor of their child's birthday. And so we would put a special plaque in the front of the book saying that this was given in honor of their child's birthday. Oh, that's cool. 
which was, you know, it was a, a very fun way. Um, sometimes they would suggest, make a suggestion about what they'd like to purchase. That was a book that their child really loved at that time or something. So that's a way to like kind of build your library's collection around what your family's interested in and also have a sweet, you know, like your child can come in and see their book. You could also ask if there are any items on a wish list and, you know, either do some fundraising of your own or, you know, maybe you and your kid decide you want to do some finance lessons and donate something small that the library is looking for or whatever, you know, asking librarians if there's something that they want to purchase they might have, you know, say, yeah, actually, I really want been wanting to buy some new shakers for our story time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, your family provides the shakers for story time. And that's, I guess, super great gift for the library. Is it true that like the libraries need its patrons to check books out and to keep books moving through the system to keep funding? Does that have anything to do with it? Just using the library? So I think this is an area where library service is changing a lot. There's a large project that the American Library Association, which is the national organization for libraries, there's a division of that that's just for public libraries. And they are really trying to encourage us to move towards more outcome-based evaluation. So what that means is saying, looking at things that are broader than just your statistics, because your statistics only tell part of the story. It's certainly not going to hurt your library Mm -hmm. to have a great circulation number, but you know, we're also saying we're also wanting to expand the way that we evaluate our services so that we can capture stories like, you know, we had five homeless patrons who came into the library that we connected with the appropriate social services to support them transitioning out of homelessness. Yeah. Like how, how can libraries capture that kind of data that we're, you know, showing the ways that we're actively improving and changing people's lives that are harder to quantify than how many times a book has been checked out? Yeah, exactly. One of the questions that some Read Aloud Revival listeners suggested I ask Amy, I forgot to ask her on the show, but I emailed her after we were done recording to ask if she would answer it for us. The question was basically, how can families work more closely with children's librarians to ensure that much loved and much used library books don't get weeded out of the library collection? So I bet you've had this experience where you've seen some of your favorite books be weeded out of the collection. I know I went to the library one time not too long ago and saw on the, sh- on the purchasing shelf, right, the Friends of the Library sales shelf, a ton of really beautiful picture book fairy tales. And I snatched them all up, selfishly thinking how wonderful of a day it was till I realized these are all getting weeded from the collection. I was so sad. So I asked Amy, how, how do librarians decide which books should be weeded? And how can we, as families who are using the library, influence the kinds of books that our libraries carry? What Amy told me was that just like a garden, library collections need to be cultivated. When shelves are too full, they're hard to browse. And she says that overwhelming collections actually lead to less circulation instead of more. Of course, then they'd also run out of space for all the wonderful new books that are coming out. And there are a lot of wonderful new books coming out every year. Amy acknowledged that it's hard to see old favorites disappearing from shelves. But she said, think through If you were browsing for a book and you pulled one out and it had a lot of mysterious stains (laughs) on it, would you want to bring it home and give it to your kids? Probably not. So books that are tattered, that are old, that are getting dirty and worn, they get weeded. And of course, the more loved books are, the more they take a beating. So they're getting checked out a lot. And so she will weed them out of the collection and librarians will weed them out of the collection to replace them with fresher copies. Now, unfortunately, not all books stay in print. 
And so unless individual publishers and companies like Beautiful Feet Books, we're big supporters of Beautiful Feet Books here at Read a Letter Revival. Companies like that are bringing books back into print. If a book has gone out of print, there's nothing a library can do to get it back. And so that's one problem. And then also librarians are trying to consider the content of the materials on their shelves, trying to figure out if there is content that's misleading or inaccurate, that's irrelevant to their community. And she says, you know, if a book is never checked out, clearly it's not meeting a need in their community. (laughs) So as a parent, I was thinking through Amy's suggestions and I thought, you know, the best way to support our libraries and to keep encouraging them to buy the kind of books that we want them to buy are to check out the kind of books that we want to read. Make heavy use of your local library and talk to your librarians and make some connections there and let them know the kind of books that you love finding in their collection. I hope that this conversation with Amy helps you realize that the people in the library, your local library, they want to work with you, they want to serve you, and they want to bring you the books that your family would love to read. And we can in turn support them and thank them and help them grow wonderful collections that will serve our whole community. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. What's your name? Hannah Ruth. Where are you from, Hannah Ruth? Alabama. What's your favorite book? Paddington. What do you like about Paddington? That he cuts his bacon in his suitcase. (laughs) Is Paddington funny? Yeah. Hello, my name is Caroline. I live in Birmingham, Alabama, and my favorite book is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because I like when Lucy comes to the lamppost and meets Mr. Thomas. Hi, my name is Ellie, and I'm from Hoover, Alabama. My favorite book is The Magician's Nephew. My favorite part is when... They come into the woods, and when they see Narnia just beginning. What's your name? Kate. What's your favorite book, Kate? Little Blue Chuck. How old are you, Kate? Two. Two. What does Little little Blue Chuck say? Blue Chuck, beep, beep, beep. Hello, my name is Murphy, and I... I am seven years old and I live in Mobile, Alabama, and my favorite book is Cobble Street Cousins because it has three little girls and the little girls are all cousins and they live in there in a house with their aunt Lucy. My name's Abram and my home state is Maryland and and my age is five and my and my favorite book is the magician's nephew and because of the chapter what happened at the front door and because of all that people and stuff like that. My name is Amaya. I am nine years old. I live in Missouri. My favorite book is Boxcar Children. I like it because there's a lot of mysteries and excitement. What's your name? My name is Juliana Wells. Juliana Rose. What's your favorite book, Juliana? My favorite book is Clifford. Clifford? Why do you like Clifford? Because that's a Juliana to me. Where do you live? In Missouri. Missouri. My name is Peter. 
I'm four. And where do you live? Milwaukee, Oregon. And what's your favorite book, Peter? The Cat in the Hat. The Cat in the Hat comes back? Yeah. What's your favorite part about that book? The room part when the cat gets back and the cat in the hat's hat. All the cats go back in the hat. And what does it do to the snow? Makes a road. And it makes the snow all clean. Yeah. My name is Chloe, and I live in California, and I'm six years old. And my favorite book, Right Aloud, is a fun book of Norse myths. Norse myths? Yeah. And I like it because Thor is very funny. Well, that's a wrap for the first episode back of season 11. So glad that we're back. I'm really excited that we have turned the Read Aloud Revival into a weekly show. You can expect a mini episode a week from today, next Tuesday. I can't wait to share it with you. And all throughout the season, you can expect an episode from the Read Aloud Revival every Tuesday. The best way not to miss a single episode is to make sure that you're subscribed in iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. And also to make sure that you're on the email list because the email subscribers always get the first word on anything awesome happening at Read Aloud Revival. Go to readaloudrevival.com and pop your email in there to make sure that you are on the list. Now, don't forget that you can grab your free librarian kit. That's going to give your librarians a sign that they can print out as well as a printable list so they can really quickly grab from their shelves and their stacks the books that we recommend here on the Read Aloud Revival. So if you'd like to see a display set up at your local library, just like Amy did for hers, grab that librarian kit, print it out. It's just a couple of pages and bring it into your local youth librarian at your local branch and see if they're up for setting up a table that helps people in the community grab Read Aloud Revival recommended resources quick and easy. You can grab that free librarian kit in the show notes to this podcast. Go to readaloudrevival.com and look for episode 65. That's where you can get it for free. Until next time, go make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Thanks for listening. Thank you.